This semester, we're going through the book, uh, we're actually going through the first, just part of the book of Genesis. And if you haven't been here, um, really the last several weeks we've been following the life of Abram, who had become Abraham. And what you need to know is you need to know Genesis 12, 1 through 3, because everything we talk about is in light of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when you talk about the story of Abram, but when you talk about everything. And that's when the first time God calls Abram, who's an idol worshiper, He's Babylonian. He's from the land of uh, what would become Babylon. And th- he just speaks to him out of nowhere. And he says, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. And I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What you have in those promises is this. God starts His mission for saving the world with this guy, Abram. The whole salvation of the world hinges on Abram having a son. It will be through Abram's line that he has an heir who will bless the world. And where we are in chapter 16 is 10 years later, Sarah is getting old. She's up in most likely her 70s at this point, or 80s. And um, several, actually several months ago, uh, before Chelsea and Christian had their baby, I brought one of our, if you know our family, we have two sets of twins, so we have twos of lots of things, uh, brought them one of the cribs that we had, hoping that we don't need it again. Um, <laughs> and it was fun to see them get their nursery ready. Just a couple of months beforehand, you, you know, you're painting the walls, you're getting the changing table. I know this doesn't make sense to y'all, but... This will be your stage in life soon, Lord willing. Um, but it's a sweet moment. And maybe you have seen that, someone getting their nursery ready, and they have a couple of weeks, a couple of months of anticipation. Um, God had told Sarah 10 years ago that she was going to have a baby. She's had the nursery ready for 10 years, not for a period of months. So she's kind of anxious. And y'all have got a dog, we've got a dog in this fight too, because the salvation of the world depended on Sarah having a child. God's promises from chapter 12 that he would make Abram into a great nation through his family so that the world would be blessed. That's been, and that, that promise has been reaffirmed in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15 up to this point that God's going to make Abram into this great nation. It's been 10 years since God promised that. And Sarah's well past her prime childbearing years. And this is how she decides to deal with the situation. This is Genesis 16. I think I have the first number wrong at the top. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar. 
servant of Sarai. Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress, submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offsprings that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Laha Roy, which actually means the well of the living one who sees me. It lies between Kadesh and Bered, and Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, life is confusing. It's confusing for me this weekend, these past weeks, and there's more confusion to be had in the future. Lord, we don't know sometimes what to expect from you or even what to hope from you. I pray now that in the midst of our disappointment and confusion about your promises, that you would speak to us, that you would comfort us, that you would answer us, that we would see you are good, that you are all-knowing, that you are just, and that you are merciful. Teach us, dear Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you all ever wanted something that was promised to you so badly that you were kind of willing almost to do anything to secure it for yourself, to take it into your own hands for doing it, to secure it for yourself. Um, There's an annual ritual in our backyard now. Our girls love the garden. My three-year-olds understand and can name more flowers in our backyard. This is really true than I can at this point. Um, You should come out. It's amazing. They get so excited when things bloom. And two weeks ago, well, about three weeks ago, the camellias started to have buds. And the girls are so excited about the camellia flowers and so excited about experiencing the glory of the camellia flowers that they can't wait anymore. And so they went and picked a whole bucket of buds. <laughs> so we have all these camellia buds in a bucket, and we have these camellia bushes with, like, camellias this high, <laughs> like, from here and up. And they're so eager for the camellias that instead of waiting on the camellias in their own timing, they take it upon themselves to go ahead and try to get them and kind of wreck it in the process. And in some ways, that a lot of times, I think, characterizes the way we relate to God and the way we think about His promises. We don't know what to do when we're disappointed, when when life is hard, when when we're, we're trying to follow Jesus, we're trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian, but it's difficult, and things don't work out the way that maybe we hoped they would, that we kind of told ourselves they would, the way we kind of prayed they would work out, maybe even the way we felt like we kind of felt promised they would work out. And so we try to figure out an explanation why, and then we create a plan to fix it. What are your disappointments with God? What's wrong that you can't seem to fix or that God doesn't seem to fix for you? And what do you do with your disappointment? Those are really our questions tonight. How do you deal with your disappointment? How do you deal with the fact the Bible's full of all these promises, and yet life is hard, and the things you hoped for and prayed for and maybe felt promised don't seem to be happening for you. And what we see in this episode 
with Sarah and Abram and Hagar is the wrong way to deal with disappointment, the consequences of dealing with it that way, and then the solution. The wrong way that we deal with disappointment, the wrong way Sarah does, the consequences of dealing with it that way, and then the solution. And this is the wrong way in which Sarah deals with disappointment. This is really kind of our main, this is our struggle. God makes the promises. She's all for God's promises. But she thinks it's her responsibility to fulfill them. God makes the promises, and a lot of times we live as if it's actually our responsibility to fulfill His promises, to procure His promises. Look at her situation. Huge promises made, right? Not just that you would have a child, but that you would become a great nation. She's up into her 80s at this point, and nothing's happened. Women don't have children in their 80s, typically, right? And so in her disappointment, in her struggle, in her frustration, it didn't happen for me, God, right? She takes it upon herself to fulfill the promises that God had made. Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female servant whose name was Hagar, an Egyptian. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant that it may be that I shall obtain, uh, that I shall obtain children by, uh, by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. And I want you to see two things here, both what she does and how she does it. First of all, what she does is she does what we're often tempted to do, create a Christianity in which God makes the promises, but it's left up to our work to fulfill them. God makes these wonderful declarations of blessing, but when our expectations aren't met, right, we decide, well, it's, okay, it's our responsibility to fulfill them, to procure them, to secure them by our own work. Here's what this can look like. It can look a lot of different ways. It can look like God's not going to give me a godly husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend until I become someone worthy of a godly wife, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, right? God's not going to give you good things until you become a good person. I don't deserve whatever it is, right? And the truth of the matter is, that's true. We don't deserve it. But the gospel solution is not, you have to start acting like someone who deserves the gifts before God's going to give you the gifts. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God treating you like you're good, even though you're not. And not because he changed you and made you into somebody good, but actually because he covers you with his goodness. It's not, you have to become a good person in order to get good things. That's the belief that in order for God to fulfill his promises, I've got to work. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's, you know, you don't feel the presence of God the way he promised. Or maybe the way that you felt him so powerfully. And so we seek a manufactured experience so that we can feel his presence. If you think God is any less present because the lighting or the musical style is different, then you have a tiny, tiny, tiny view of God. And in fact, if you read the New Testament, the place where God actually talks about his presence being kind of his most intense form of being present in the New Testament is actually this, the faithful preaching of God's word, the administration of the sacraments, and actually, here's the other one, church discipline. When God talks about being present in the New Testament church, he actually doesn't ever talk about lighting and musical style. He talks about preaching. He talks about sacraments. And he actually talks about church discipline. When you want to see God talking about being near and present, those are actually the places. But you see, when we think it's up to us to create his presence, again, we're thinking, I've got to do 
what it takes to get God to fulfill his promises. Maybe another form it takes on is you've done too many bad things, so you've got to at least start the work of cleaning yourself up before you can become eligible for forgiveness. You've got to do what it takes to get God to fulfill his promises. These situations are just pictures. There's certainly different ways we do it. They're pictures of the ways a lot of times we live our Christian life. We live like God is this fickle, temperamental God that can turn on us at any moment. So we've got to do what it takes to secure, to get, to fulfill His best for us. Can you admit that sometimes the way you feel about God is that you have no idea how to get a handle on Him and you feel like with every passing circumstance in your life, He's dealing with you totally different ways and you're trying to reinterpret Him and you're just, He's bouncing back and forth and He's taking you from highs to lows and from sweet times to bad times and the way that you're trying to smooth it out is actually you're trying to tame God with your works. It's like he's hidden and we're trying to figure out how he feels about our choices today so that we can change him and we can get him to like us again. The way we handle disappointment a lot of times is actually to look at ourselves and what we do and our ability and our discipline to smooth out what confuses us about God. That's what Sarah does. That's what she does. This is how she does it. The practice of having a maidservant Sleep with your husband was sin according to God. We know that from Genesis 2. One man, one woman, one flesh. But it's actually totally acceptable in the culture. There are a lot of, there's a ton of archaeological evidence that shows how this is a legitimate, legal, acceptable practice, including Hammurabi's Code, which some of you all might have seen in, was it the National Museum in London? Seen it. On there, it's inscribed. It's legal, it's right, if a woman can't have a child, to have her maid sleep with her husband. When she, when Sarah doesn't know how to handle her impatience and disappointment with God, she looks to culture. She looks to the world to show her how to handle life and how to fix things. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you're willing to do almost whatever it takes to get it right? A social grouping and acceptance. You want to be among a certain group of people. Well, that requires that you snub others. That's totally culturally acceptable. It's how you do it, right? A grade, which is good, you've got to get good grades. And so you embrace the common, culturally accepted practice of the kind of halfway justified cheating, which really isn't that bad because everyone does it, but you know if your teacher knew about it, she wouldn't be super excited, right? But it's kind of culturally okay. And, you, and you're doing it for a grade, right? Sarah thinks the way to deal with disappointments is to take the commonly, culturally accepted ways of doing things And with those, go about trying to fulfill the promises of God by her work. You know, (laughs) this is America. This is the lifeblood of America. This is the ethos that we swim in, that we breathe, we bleed this kind of thinking. This strikes at the core of what it means to be American. I'm not trying to be un-American up here, but I'm telling you all, these kind of phrases, if you believe it, you can achieve it, right? This is what America's built on. If you set your mind to it, you can do anything, right? I watch... I remember, I don't watch the NBA often, but not Basketball Association. Um, but I saw the Celtics win. I saw the Celtics win several years ago, and Kevin Garnett screamed into the camera after the game. He says, anything is possible. Does anybody remember this moment? Okay, when you're 6'11 and can play point guard, anything is possible. <laughs> this is the rallying cry of us. 
This is what our children are watching. Bob the Builder. After reflecting on the sermon, I don't think my children can watch Bob the Builder anymore. <laughs> Y'all know the chorus of Bob the Builder? Can we fix it? We've been told we can fix everything. And this is why when life is hard and it's disappointing, when patience is demanded, we don't think God is sovereign and He is good and He is just and He is merciful. We think, what do I have to do to fix this? Who do I have to become? God made the promises, but we think it's up to us to fulfill them. And that's what Sarah did. And then notice what happens relationships break. It rips relationships apart. When we look at ourselves to fulfill the promises of God, it rips relationships apart. These are the consequences of the wrong way we deal with disappointment. Sarah puts her plan into action. She's a schemer. She looks at culture for the right way to get what she wants, and this is what her culture gives her. Get your husband to sleep with your maid. And in the great one of... There are a lot of understatements in Scripture. One of the greater understatements of Scripture, Abram listened to the voice of his wife, right? He's such, he's such a family man. Um, honey, I need you to have sex with this exotic Egyptian younger woman for the Lord, right? Can you do that for me? Like, Abram, wow, what a servant's heart. Really? And where does their scheme... I didn't intend that to be that funny, but I guess it is. Um, where does her scheming get her, though, after her plan? She blames everybody. She gets angry, and she blames everybody. After, after actually Hagar shows spite to Sarah, Sarah says to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw me, and when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me and had contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Imagine this. When you don't trust Jesus and ask your husband to sleep with your maid, you get angry at everybody else. Who would have thunk, right? <laughs> when we live as if God makes the promises and we fulfill the promises, everyone else pisses us off. And we blame everybody else for what's wrong. We don't think we're like Sarah. But everybody in this room, I'm going to demonstrate to you right now, is exactly like Sarah, including me. The last time you had a disagreement, conflict with your roommate or your parents, who was wrong? Okay, now think about the time before that. Who was wrong that time? Go back another one. Who was wrong the third conflict ago? Everybody in this room thinks we're batting a thousand right now. We're just like Sarah. That's what she does. She looks around the world. She thinks, I'm an innocent bystander. I'm just surrounded by y'all stupidity, and I'm getting sideswiped by y'all stupidity. That's how we all interact with our roommates, our friends, our family, our girlfriends, boyfriends, whoever it is. We're all batting a thousand in all of our conflicts. Everybody else has always been wrong in your life, right? There's like two humble people in here somewhere. I'm not one of them. That actually, like, there are two different times in their life. Like, yeah, I was wrong that time. I was just way off. We don't see ourselves as co-participants in the brokenness of the world. We see ourselves as good-natured, in the right, just getting sideswiped by other people being idiots. Do you see how stupid of a perspective that is? 
Do you see how if everybody believes that everyone else is wrong, there can be no relational harmony at all? We're just like Sarah. We live by our own designs and our own devices, and it's everyone else who's wrong. And the fact that you still believe that it's everyone else who's wrong proves the point. As long as everybody in the community believes that everyone else is wrong, there's no community. Relationships disintegrate. So we have Sarah, who's the angry blamer, and then we have Abram, the willing sacrificial servant husband, right? Willing to do whatever his wife needs him to do. He's a pervert. Someone gives him license to do something wrong, and he's like, okay. Instead of standing for the law of God, one wife, one, one, wife, one husband, one flesh, he abdicates responsibility. He follows. He's lazy. <laughs> Guys, don't raise your hands, because the girls will never come back to RUF. <laughs> but if your girlfriend asked you, hey, can we watch a porno together it's okay, I won't be upset with you. Would you do it? Girls, come back to RUF, please. <laughs> Would you? If someone told you it was okay, if your girlfriend, if your wife, if I told you it was okay, would you do it? Do you take your cues from common practice and from the people who are around you and what they deem acceptable? It's okay because a lot of people are doing it. Do you look at what other people are doing and justify your behavior by their behavior? Either A, they're doing it so it's okay, or B, they're doing it, but I'm not doing it as much as they are. I'm not going as far as they are. One of the areas in which I think we do this most often is actually truth-telling. It is perfectly acceptable in this culture to lie to keep people from getting their feelings hurt, right? To lie to avoid being unpopular, to lie so because it costs a lot. And you see, the heart behind that is the same heart of cowardice and laziness that has no regard for truth and for the law of God. And what happens when people just follow cultural cues of moral acceptability, relationships disintegrate. If no one stands up for law and truth and the community just spirals into selfish, lazy pursuits, guess what? No one gets along the relationships disintegrate. When everybody's too selfish and too cowardly to fight for what's right, relationships fall apart. We have Sarah, the angry blamer. We have Abram, the lazy guy just doing whatever people tell him around is acceptable. And then we also have Hagar, and she's treated like an object. She really is. She's at the whim of her masters. She's, she's victimized in some sense, but how does she respond? She looked, verse 4, when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, on Sarah. The maid finally gave her master what her master's husband could never give him, an heir, a son. And not just an heir, but what they thought was the promised heir from God to bless the world. Imagine how threatened Sarah felt at this moment for the next several months when she saw... Hagar get pregnant when she saw Hagar receive Abram's attention and Abram's comfort to see her maid be everything for her husband that she could never be. And on top of that, Sarah hates her, mistreats her, and Hagar spites her and then runs away. And see, Hagar doesn't 
she doesn't come off as clean either. She's a victim, but she's a spiteful victim who runs away. Some of us have been so hurt by God's people that our identity becomes our victimhood. You look at the church, and you can only see how church people have hurt you. And maybe they really have hurt you. But you justify your rebellion and your detachment and your closed-offness and your running away because you're a victim. And you have a right to hate the messy church that pissed you off when we all act like spiteful victims. Guess what? Relationships disintegrate. You see how quickly things spiral out of control here. We believe that God makes promises, but it's up to us to fulfill them. It's up to us actually taking our cues from culture, from the world, to fulfill the promises, to fix our disappointment. Here's the application, second point. You can't fix it. You just can't. You can't guarantee anything in this life. Some of you are closely acquainted with that fact, maybe because you've lost someone recently. Or you've seen something spiral out of control or tasted something spiraling out of control recently. You can put a Band-Aid on life for a while. You can parody and you can mimic God's blessings for a while, but you can't guarantee anything. This is what happens when we're disappointed, when over and over and over again we're disappointed with the loneliness in our life, right? Then we date and we marry people who are hot but don't love Jesus because we'll take anything. Here's what happens when we're disappointed and or hurt by the church. We leave it and we find another church that we like until that one bothers us. Here's what happened when roommate friendship situations get hard. We run from it to avoid conflict because we want peace. This is what happens when following and obeying Jesus gets really, really hard and maybe possibly socially costly to just do the right thing. What we do is we look at our friend's behavior and we justify what we want to do by what they do. This is what happens when we have a right to be angry. We take the anger out on people through slander and through immature social behavior, right? This is what happens when we're sad. We want to make more money so we can be happy, right? Daniel Tosh promises us we can be happy. This is what happens when we're anxious and lonely. We create a farce. We create a parody, a mimicry of intimacy that's called porn and masturbation. You see, God promises, he promises fellowship, he promises joy, he promises intimacy, he promises relational healing, he promises peace, he promises justice. And the way we respond in all these situations is we look at those promises and we're like, where are they? And so we manufacture a mimicry of those promises. You can't fulfill promises that God makes. That's the point. You can't fulfill promises that God makes. You can't do it. Our motto is, can we fix it? No. But Jesus can in a really odd way that we would have never come up on our own, but is perfect and beautiful. Sell a show to PBS with that. You know, so much of American Christianity is fixated on this notion that you can fix your disappointment now, and you can't. You can't. I don't know if y'all are going to get married. I don't know if y'all are going to have miscarriages. I don't know if someone in here is going to have cancer in the next year. I don't know. God doesn't make those promises to us. You can't fix What's wrong with this world? So what's the solution? We see the solution to our disappointment and our inability to fix things in the way God deals with Hagar. 
And we see two things that stand out. The angel of the Lord, after she runs away from Abram and Sarah, the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar. And the first thing we see is that we see the solution is the God who comes. The God who comes, the angel of the Lord is a theophany, a representation of God. And in Hagar's running distress, he goes out and he finds her and he addresses her, Hagar. Now it's actually really significant here that he uses her name. Sarah never refers to her by name. In ancient Near Eastern literature, there is no archaeological evidence that a deity ever referred to a woman by her name except for right here. This is a depiction of intimacy, of care, the God who comes, who calls after her, who calls her by name and calls her in verse 9 to return. Return to your mistress and submit to her. And the same God that comes here in this form came in another form later. Came in the form of a servant, Jesus Christ, and he comes into this world and he enters into our situation, he enters into our pain, and he enters into our temptation and our struggles and our disappointments. Christianity is distinct from every other religion because it's the only one where the deity comes in and suffers alongside with and also for his people. In your distress and in your disappointment and the confusion about life, this is the first thing you must know. This is the God who comes. This is the God who comes for you. He comes and his suffering was not merely what they show in the passion of the Christ. His suffering was every day that he was here. He was enthroned in heaven in perfection and in glory and in power. And the moment he was conceived in Mary's womb, he set aside the power and the glory of heaven and he walked as a man. And then he died with divine wrath being poured out on him for those that are in him. He is the God who comes. He is the God who's intimately with your struggle, with your disappointment, with the difficulty of life. But we also learn more things from this passage. He's not just the God who comes. He's the God who hears and sees. The angel of the Lord says to her in verse 11, Behold, you're pregnant, you shall bear a son. And this is what you shall call his name, Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened, has heard your affliction. He's not distant. He's not deaf. He's not unaware. He's heard. And more so than that, verses 13 and 14. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, and she called him, You are a God of seeing. You are the God who sees. She said, Truly, I've seen him who sees, who looks upon me. And therefore the well was called the well of the living one who sees. This notion of the God who sees, seeing kind of has two aspects to it, both an aspect of knowledge and an aspect of care. He's a God who sees, and so he knows everything, past, present, future, everything hidden and everything open. He's not like us, only seeing the present and vaguely aware of the past, only seeing the appearance of things on the outside, which are often misleading. He's God. And he knows past, present, future. He sees appearances, and he sees into all of our hearts. His seeing is both His knowledge, but also His care. This is what this means. These circumstances, the circumstances in your life, are part of His plan and His care for you. 
He knows. And this, the disappointments you're confronting now, you have confronted in the past, you will confront in the future. Those are his care for you. And you might be wondering, why is this his care for me? Why are these circumstances his care for me? We sing this song a couple of times a semester, and it's becoming more and more beautiful to me. It's by John Newton, and he explains how, we can, how to deal with that reality. How can we say this is his care for us, this is his best for us, the disappointment we encounter? This is how the song goes. Uh, I'm going to read just a select couple of verses. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, that I might more know His salvation and seek more earnestly His face. Like wonderful prayer. We pray it all the time. He taught me how to pray this. And He, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way that it almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once He'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, he'd subdue my sins and give me rest. But instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. He let the angry powers of hell assault my soul and every part. Yea, even more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. And he crossed, messed up all my fair designs I schemed, and he blasted my plans and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried, will you pursue your worm to death. This is the way, the Lord replied, that I answer the prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you will find your all in me. Do you see that God's glory, that His faithfulness, that His goodness and His grace are magnified in the most extreme circumstances? The way He often builds faith is not by giving you your wildest dreams at the moment, but by making you look on Him, rest in Him, seek after Him, trust in Him, wait on Him. If He had told Abram in chapter 12, I'm going to give you a son, you're going to become a great nation. And then Abram and Sarah had a kid at 31, at age 31. Is that compelling? Is that a demonstration of God's power? Does that give you confidence and faith in Him? Maybe. But a lot of people have kids at age 31. Instead, what God chooses to do in the following chapters is that when Sarah was over 90, God gives them a child and she becomes pregnant. Which one of those circumstances gives you stronger faith? You see that God's good providence is often that we suffer disappointment, that He would refine and strengthen our faith, that He would become sweeter to us and more precious to us. Three points of application. We're done. The first one is this. This is my favorite point of application. Come to read Stop. Stop. Stop thinking that God is fickle, that He's tricky, that He's inconsistent, that He thinks one way about you at one point, and then another way at a different time. He's constant. In the midst of your circumstances, He's constant. He's sovereign. He's good. If you've trusted in Jesus, you're His, and the Bible tells us He dances over the fact that you're His. That doesn't change. In Him, He who began a good work in you is going to bring completion. In Him, we've obtained an eternal inheritance. Not going to obtain. We have obtained an eternal inheritance. Having been predestined, biblical word, deal with it, according to the purposes (laughs) of Him who works all things, all things, 
not just the good things, all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, here's the purpose of God working all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Stop. He's not tricking you. He hasn't changed his mind about you. He hasn't forgotten about you. Stop trying to fulfill by your own works the promises God made you. Guess who made the promises? God. Guess what that means? Guess who fulfills the promises? God. Paul addresses this passage, Genesis 16, actually in Galatians 4. He's frustrated with the church at Galatia, if if you've ever read the letter. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it was written that Abram had two sons, one by a slave woman, Hagar, one by a free woman, Sarah. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, according to the designs of the flesh. While the son of the free woman, you know how he was born? He was born through promise. He was born through promise. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, Hagar. She represents the law. The way you get God's promises is by working to fulfill them. But you brothers, like Isaac, you're children of promise. You're children of promise. So brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery he's talking about is this. The slavery of thinking, it's up to your work to secure the promises of God. Don't submit again to that. The promises are yours because Jesus fulfills the promises on your behalf. Stop thinking you have to do the right things to get God to give you His promises. It's a promise. It's not a contest. Promises are received. They're not earned. Stop. Rest. Be free. Stop. Secondly, look up. Look up to the one who sees because He sees it all. He knows what's best and He's actually giving you what's best. And when you look at life circumstances around you and they're overwhelming because they often are, you need to know that in your perspective, you don't know that much. Our perspective's very, very, very limited. We know so little. We see so little. We understand so little. He sees it all. He knows it all. He understands it all. So fix your eyes on Him. This is why when the psalmist says, I lift my eyes up to the hill, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord, and this is what he says next, who made the heavens and the earth. He he adds that, it comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, to remind us it comes from the one who made everything, who sees it all. And there's comfort in that. I went to this camp in Northern California, and they had this kind of low-ropes team-building exercise stuff they did. And one of the things they did, maybe some of you all have done it, is when people pair off in groups and one person puts on a blindfold, and the person without the blindfold and the pair leads them through an obstacle course. And um, when you blind one, fold, one person, the game is a game of trust, right? But actually, it's more than just a game of trust, the blindfolded person trusting the person who can see. It's actually trusting the one who sees more than you. If someone sees more than you, then success in the game comes not from you with your limited ability to determine the obstacles around you, trying to figure it out on your own. Success doesn't come that way. It actually comes when you put your hands in their hands and you actually fix your focus upon them and they understand the circumstances around you and walk you through them. Success comes in the game when all your attention is actually fixed on the one who does see. 
instead of you trying to discern with your limited perspective the circumstances around you and govern them by yourself. Look at the one who sees. Get your cues from him. Trust him. Follow him. Keep your gaze on him and he'll walk you through your circumstances. Stop. Stop living this ridiculous Christianity where you think God's fickle and you always have to try to figure him out. He's very constant. He's faithful. Look up. Get your cues from him. And lastly, look forward. This room... You know, it's probably savvy enough that we don't have any Joel Osteen readers in here. And now, because I said that, we'll never have any Joel Osteen readers in here. But the title of his big best-selling book is Your Best Life Now. How sad is that title? How despairing is that title? Your Best Life Now. If the good moments in this life are the best, what a sad gospel you have to preach. Don't just look up, also look forward. Because those are in Jesus, your best life is not now. It's later. And we all need to make a regular practice of reading the last couple of chapters of Revelation. If we don't make a practice of looking forward to the resurrection, which, by the way, is what communion is for, then life is going to kill us. Because we can't fix it. We have to look forward. It's no longer cool to be an Eagle Scout, so I can tell you I'm an Eagle Scout without bragging. Um, <laughs> But in the course of doing that, we did a, a lot of camping and had to learn how to use compasses and would do these compass course over several miles. And the way you, the way you get to your end point is this. You find your direction, and then you actually choose a point on the horizon, and you walk toward that point. The way you get to where you're supposed to be going is you find, you, you, you know, turn until you find the right degrees, and you choose a point far off on the horizon, and you constantly walk towards that point. Not, the way you don't get there is by fixing your eyes on anything immediately around you. It doesn't mean that you don't deal with your immediate surroundings, but you do it with actually your eyes fixed on your final destination. And if you focus on the immediate surroundings instead of on the final destination, you get lost. That's the whole point of the compass course that they taught us. Look forward. Keep your eyes on that horizon, on the resurrection. Last night, Elizabeth and I were sitting down with my parents and we were talking through this, and I just kind of began to feel this text personally. I'm a young father of three-year-olds and five-year-olds. Guess what? I've already messed up my children irreparably. It's messed up. Now, y- y'all believe because we're upper-middle class, white and suburban, that we have our lives together and my children laugh a lot. I've hurt my children irreparably. The things that I've done to them will not be fixed until the resurrection. I've imparted my sin to them. I've been angry with them. I've raged against them. I've disciplined them inappropriately. And the damage I've caused, Jesus can do some healing now and praise Jesus that he does. But it ain't all getting fixed until the resurrection. I've already messed up my marriage. Elizabeth and I are dealing with my baggage in our marriage the rest of our life. Jesus is going to heal us some, but guess what? It ain't all getting fixed. It's just going to be hard until the end. If I don't have the resurrection then buy into the Joel Osteen crap and let the good moments in this life be your best moments. But what a sad gospel to preach. I can't fix my kids. I can't fix my heart. I've been working on it for 31 years, 10 more years than all of y'all. And guess what? It's still messed up. I can't fix it. I just hope 
This is my hope in life. I hope that Jesus is going to protect me from doing something really horrible to somebody. I hope that I'm not going to hurt too many people and that by His grace, I can be a little bit faithful with the rest of my life. I'm not saying there's not some healing that happens in this life. There is, and it's good, and praise Jesus for it. But it's just not all going to get fixed. You can't fix your body. You're not going to be able to fix your family. And you can't fix your relationships. And as long as your focus is on you fixing your immediate circumstances, be prepared for despair and just buy the next book that comes up. Instead of that, though, I would implore you, look forward to the resurrection, to the Lamb's Feast, when everything's made new, when it's all fixed, when there won't be any more tears, there won't be any more abuse, there won't be any more pain, there won't be any more death, there'll be no more disappointment. Deal with your circumstances fixed on that horizon. In the midst of your disappointment, stop. Stop freaking out. Look at the one who comes for you. The one who sees, the one who knows, the one who cares, and look forward to what he has for you. That's what faith is. Let's pray.